your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We could stand here all day and give you thanks. Lord, we just give you praise and thanks because you are way above us and what we can even think, Lord. And we're honored that you have shown us love and mercy. May we never forget that all of our lives. Help us to grow as we study your word and help us to be more like you when we leave in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 27 is going to talk about, in the beginning here, the burnt offering. So as you come into, uh, as you come into the gate, there's only one way in, right? Which speaks of Christ. There's only one way to get to heaven. You've got to come through the door. Jesus said, I'm the door. This is the door. And when you come in the door, you're coming in with thanksgiving and praise. And then you're going to be met with this piece of furniture right off the bat. Because if you don't get your heart and mind right with God initially here, it's going to interfere with the rest of this time you spend with him. One of the reasons, uh, I'll give you a thing. A lot of times people get distracted when they're praying. Uh, or uh, the thing we don't want to be, there's a lot of things that prayer can do, but we want to get get the most out of prayer. And that's why I, the Lord, I believe, revealed this to me years ago. Some people, when they pray, they do what the Pharisees and the hypocrites do. They just say the same thing over and over and over. And Jesus rebuked them for that. He said, you guys are just running your mouth, basically. <laughs> so you want to be, you want to be effective what what the, what the Bible say in James? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Of course, you could plug in woman there. The ferv- the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So there's a lot being said there with those words. <clears throat> Let's go over to James real quick. Let's leave that on the board there for now. I just want to read that passage to you and look at a few words here. I believe it's James chapter 5. The effectual, fervent prayer. Uh, He said, the reason he rebuked the people praying in the New Testament, he said, you think you're going to be heard because you just keep running your mouth. (laughs) Right? He said, you think you're going to be heard because you... because of much speaking, I think is how the Bible says. He says, you think... That that's causing you just saying the same thing over and over and over, being redundant. Uh, Let's see, is that uh, chapter 5 or 6 in James? Well, there's only five chapters, so. He says, uh, uh, yeah, verse 16, uh, he says, Confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed, the effective, fervent prayer, the old King James says effectual, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, what, when did he say that? He said that right after he talked about repentance, right? So if you're going to be effective, fervent, and see some fruit of your prayer time, Repentance is where it starts. So, uh, to assume that we have no sin, the Bible says, we're a liar. Right in John. 
just you don't have to put these on the board. I'm just going to flip. Hold your spot there, and James, we're going to come right back to that. Uh, so he in First John, one of the epistles of John. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And we know God's not a liar. And his word is not in us. So that's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, reminding us that we're still in the flesh, that we deal with shortcomings, sin. Now, think about that and then go back to James and look at verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Then he goes on to say, the effective or the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So what is, a, what is a person doing when they come into this tabernacle in, in, uh, in prayer time, in a sense, when you come in with thanksgiving and praise, then you're met with this piece of furniture. This piece of furniture calls you and I to repent, right? And a lot of times Christians have turned their backs, or they should have turned their backs on the things of the world, uh, so a lot of times what will happen with a Christian, it'll be the things they've left undone, right? We call those sins of omission. Things that maybe God has asked you to do. Uh, maybe you uh, put God off. Maybe you stole some of his money, the tithe, whatever. You know, something you need to repent about. Something that you've left undone. Whatever that would be, you want to clear that up. Because that will be a hindrance to us getting what God wants to do in us as we spend time with him, right? Uh, it's awkward conversation with somebody if you're at odds with one another, right? Uh, and everybody's probably experienced that at some time in your life. It's hard. It's an awkward conversation. Uh, so you don't want that to be between, you don't want anything to be between you and the Lord. So the Lord set this up to where you and I could get that stuff off of us immediately, pretty much soon as we're coming through the door there because we don't want any interference now the second thing we have to guard against is what jesus called vain repetition what i said a while ago just saying the same thing over and over and over and because you say it over and over and over you think you're going to be heard more jesus nixed that he said you're not going to be heard more just because you say the same thing over and over and over why because god bypasses all of our stuff and look straight in here. Right in here. Now it's interesting to me that when James talks about prayer, he also says, he says, some of you are praying, but you're praying amiss. In other words, you're not on target when you pray. And you're not getting your prayers answered. And he said, but it's because you're, you have eros. Basically is how I would say that. He said, you pray because all your prayers about you, right? And about what you need and what you want instead of 
praying the will of God. The whole, the reason a lot of people never get into this moment with God is because they bypass all this furniture. They think praying is running back here and telling God what they want, what they think God ought to be doing, if they're brazen enough, and, and think uh, basically just making petitions. We call them requests, right? That's what a lot of people think all prayer is about. They just think it's about making a request. And so what they do is they run past all this stuff that God set up for to interact with us and to draw us close to him so that if I work my way through the furniture here, figuratively speaking, then I've got a different mindset back here. I can pray according to the will of God instead of the, what Matthew thinks. Matthew thinks, here's, let me tell you what Matthew thinks. Matthew thinks, I ought to just go over there in the children's hospital and clean it out. That's what I think. Have you ever been to a children's hospital? It's one of the worst places you can go. It'll break you down. To look at an 18-month-old baby that's not done anything wrong, but sitting there with brain cancer. It'll break you down. So Matthew thinks, well, there's no need for that. Why should that 18-month-old have cancer? Let's go over there and clean that out. Right? That's how I think. That's the flesh in me, right? Nothing wrong with having compassion. But we know, as we've been studying Job on Wednesday night, that God does things His way. He don't do them our way. So the best thing, prayer is not for you and I to get God to see things our way. Prayer should be about us seeing things God's from God's perspective. So that when I pray, that I can pray according to His will, that I don't pray amiss. So what we're getting ready to read about, at least initially in this chapter, is, is this repentance. So when you see this verse in James, he says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. So we're talking about the effective fervent prayer of somebody who's in good standing with God. Right? As I shared to you last night, when I collapsed in Texas, I didn't have time to pray. A lot of people were putting off praying, thinking, well, when that time comes, I didn't have time to say nothing to God. I was down, gone. And he raised me back. If he hadn't had mercy on me, which I was already a Christian. But think about somebody in that position that's not a Christian. You can die in a, in a car wreck in a second. I collapsed in a second. I didn't have time to pray. I was gone. So none of us have the promise of tomorrow, so we need to make sure we're in good standing with God, uh, not just uh, for that moment, but so that our prayers can be effective and fervent. And we'll, we'll talk about that at another time. We'll break this verse down. Some of you have actually heard me break it down before. But let's go into uh, uh, Exodus chapter 27. He says, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, and five's the number of grace. Five cubits wide, the altar shall be square. So the reason, if you go into Hebrew understanding and you start studying numerology, we know God likes number seven. He's got a, a meaning behind one, two, three, four, five. And five is the meaning that they theologians have come to agreement on that is grace. And why would this one be five, that altar? That altar would be five because that is grace. Listen, you and I don't deserve to repent. We, didn't, we're not, we don't get a chance to repent because we're good. <laughs> we get a chance to repent because God is good. And that's grace. 
Grace is more than unmerited favor. I like what Arthur Pink says about this. Arthur Pink's a, uh, he's going to be the Lord, but like I said, I mostly read dead guys, but he's wrote a lot of stuff, pretty deep theological, and he talks about how grace is a little bit underrepresented. You know, because we talk about grace, we just kind of say it's unmerited favor. But he, he gives a definition for grace that's expansive. He talks about how grace is more than just unmerited favor. You get something you don't deserve. He said, here's what grace really is. Grace is you going to somebody's house and stealing from them and going back the next day and they still love you and feed you anyway. He said, that's grace. He said, grace is going to somebody and abusing that relationship and taking advantage of that relationship and doing them wrong and then coming back the next day and that person still loves you and offers to help you. That's who God is. We didn't earn our acceptance. We didn't earn access to this place. We got granted that through the mercy of God by His Son. That's how we got it. So... Coming into this tower, that's why this number five is used here, five cubits, because it's about grace. That altar is bloody. It's a bloody mess. When these priests would go in there and they would sacrifice that animal, shoot that back up there. When they would go in here and sacrifice this animal, they would be a bloody mess. And so they, they were covered, which they were covered extensively down to their, and we'll talk about them as we go through Exodus, but down to their wrist, their ankles, up to their neck. These guys, but there would be a bloody mess sacrificing these animals here for the offerings, right? And then they would come over to the laver and wash themselves off. That's why there was a pedestal because their feet were exposed and their hands, right? They could wash and get that blood off of them. And once the water down here where the feet were washed and the water up here, then I, I mentioned this last week, this basin, the basin was lined with the mirrors of the women who had brought them as an offering. And uh, that's a big sacrifice for women to bring their, their mirrors for an offering, right? And, and so they, uh, they, especially back in those days, now we got a mirror in every room in the house, but that was probably hard to come by, right? So they brought their mirrors. So when this priest got through making the sacrifice, he would walk over here and he would look down there and the first thing he would see is his own reflection until he washed the blood off of his hands. And then the blood would fill the basin and he could no longer see himself. He could only see the blood. And that's how God sees us, right? He sees the blood when he looks down at us. So this grace is a beautiful thing, these five. You shall make it horns on the four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece of it. You shall lay uh, it over bronze. Of course, they would tie the sacrifice to the horns. It's, a, it's kind of a brutal thing. And one of the things that's really brutal is how meek a lamb is. Yeah. And uh, he said, you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, this, this particular piece of furniture is overlaid with bronze instead of gold. We saw how the ark represented the deity of God, but bronze represents judgment. So God was judging the sin on the animal. They were, the priest would lay hands and it's like a form of transference. But all this was what? Speaking of God putting our judgment on His own Son. You think about that for a minute. Every wrong thing you and I have done, Jesus paid for. 
We should have paid for it. We done it, right? And he paid for it. He took our judgment. He was judged. Uh, you shall make its pans or receive its ashes, its shovels, its basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make its utensils of bronze. All this speaks of the judgment on the sin. You shall make a gate for it, a network of bronze, a network you shall make four bronze rings for its corners because it would be carried like the rest of the furniture. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath and the network may be uh, by midway upon the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. Again, using bronze here and not gold. The poles will be put in the rings and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards as it is shown you on the mountains, so you shall, uh, so shall they make it. Then he, uh, that's that place where we repent. That represents repentance. It represents sacrifice. It represents those animals and our sacrifice. And it represents ultimately Jesus being the sacrifice. You shall also make a court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of two uh, woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And, and every 20 pillars, there's 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. So you've got judgment and redemption being shown here. Silver represents redemption. Gold represents deity. And he says, likewise, also uh, the length of the north side there shall be hangings 100 cubits along with his 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits. Now, I'm not going to break all this down. However, there's a redemption for the spirit of man and there's a judgment for the flesh of man. You're going to have to have a new body. I'm going to have to have a new body. We don't get to take this one with us. <laughs> and we're all glad about that, right? <laughs> but you, there's a judgment against the flesh. And there's a life eternal for the spirit slash soul of man. You're going to have to have a new body, a glorified body. Because this one has been corrupted and exposed to sin. Now, when you get into the Old Testament, you'll see that Jacob and Esau were born. God says something. He speaks this again in the New Testament. Clear, Paul actually gives life to it. He says, Esau I've hated and Jacob I've loved. Because they represent the spirit, right? And the flesh. Esau was a man of the field or he was a fleshly man. He cared about the things of the world. And, and Esau and Jacob was trained more on the spiritual side. All right? So when Jacob and Esau are born... The Bible said, prophesied, the older shall serve the younger. Now, the oldest man or person you and I have is the flesh. The design, thanks to the work of God, the word of God, the redemption of Jesus, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the design is that the older will serve the younger. The youngest person in our lives is the one that's been born again. You and I were born in the natural then we lived however long you lived until you became a believer, till you were redeemed. So the oldest person is the flesh. The youngest person is the spirit, right? So the design is that the older shall serve the younger, that your fleshly man will come into subjection to this new birth that's happened inside of you by the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. So that now your older person 
submits to the younger person, which has been born again by Jesus Christ. So you see that stuff starting to open up and play out in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is, is a type and shadow of what God is to do, just even with the tabernacle here. So we see the beauty of how salvation is supposed to work. So you have judgment on the natural man and life eternal for the spiritual man, and then that spiritual man is going to get a new body. When you go over to Hebrews, he talks about Jacob and Esau, and he said Esau despised his birthright. That didn't mean he hated it. That's a bad choice of words in the English there. Uh, when we think of the word despise, we think about uh, <clears throat> that somebody hates something, right? Uh, but in the Greek there, that word means that he placed no value on his birthright because he was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of beans. He come in, he said, uh, Jacob was being a deceiver, right? Operating in the flesh himself here. But all this was prophesied. It was going to come about that Jacob was going to be the Israel, not Esau. But he comes in, he says, I'm about to die. And he says, give me a birthright. I'll give you a bowl of beans. He wasn't about to die. You ever said that before? I'm starving. I'm about to die. Well, you ate this morning. You ain't about to die. And you ain't starving. But that's how the flesh is, right? We're so dramatic. And so he comes in and he thought that his birthright was less valuable than a bowl of beans. Let me tell you something. Esau ain't the only one like that. This world's full of people like that. That their spiritual life, their heritage means nothing to them. They'd rather get high. They'd rather trade it for money or fame or fortune. And what he's actually saying there in Hebrews is that Esau placed no value on spiritual things. He was just worried about the flesh. And mo listen, let's be real. Our family trees have people like that in it, right? They do. They have people that are more concerned about this world and the stuff of this world than they are the things of God. So he says, uh, and on the other side, verse uh, 15 says, On the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits, their tr uh, three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court uh, there shall be a, a screen uh, 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So we have grace. Blue is represents grace as well. Purple represents royalty. And scarlet represents sacrifice. So all this door has been given to us from royalty through grace by sacrifice. That's how we got in. Because somebody who had no sin, somebody who was true royalty... Not somebody with an earthly name or descent. Somebody who had no earthly descent, right? Jesus, Father, was the Holy Spirit, right? He planted the seed of God in Mary. And then Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, of which there was no mention of priesthood, because that was like Levi's, but he was made after the order of Melchizedek. An eternal priesthood. The one who came out from Salem to meet Abraham on the back of... On the, uh, after him winning and he had wine and uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. 
and Abraham and Melchizedek had communion, right? Before the law. They had communion before the law and Abraham was paying tithes before the law. That's the relationship, right? That's, that's all God. And so Abraham is there and Melchizedek and this Jesus that we talk about who's true royalty, who died in our place, redeemed us sacrificially and gave us grace. That's how we have access. He is the door. He's the door. You're not going to heaven unless you come through Jesus Christ. I don't care how good people think they are. And I had to put a book down the other day because this guy got off in the weeds with that stuff. I had to quit reading it. Because he had a few good things to say at the beginning of this book and then he started talking about how God's not going to send anybody to hell that's got a good heart. Let me say something. God don't send anybody to hell to start with. We send ourselves there. And so he... We have, and I've been reading some better material from a rabbi who talks about our choices and how, you know, you get, you have, and this is a common saying out now. People will say, to try and excuse somebody, they'll say, well, they wasn't in their right mind. Why weren't they? How many years did they surrender to Satan? If you keep giving room to Satan, pretty soon you're not going to be in your right mind. That's how this works. The wages of sin is death. But we keep watering things down, right? Now, now if you're a politician, you don't, you, don't, you don't lie anymore. You just misspeak. But now if we told something that wasn't true, we'd be liars. You see how we just keep watering down everything? Because we forgot. What did we forget? There's going to be a judgment someday. There is. And your mom won't be there to hold your hand. Your father won't be. Your best friend, your spouse, your children. Just going to be you and God. We're all going to stand before him, the Bible says, and give an account of ourselves. And so we need to understand that the reason you and I are going to heaven is not by how good we are or what we think, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's what communion's all about. It's about the work of Jesus Christ. He says, the, for the gate, the court's going to be made of this thread and these uh, coverings and the fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets and all the pillars round the court have, uh, shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. Uh, <clears throat> and so God gifts people to do certain things. He gifts them uh, and that's how he made you up. So there's a couple things going on there. Don't try to do something God ain't gifted you to do. And the other thing is, don't take the credit for what you are gifted to do. You were made that way by God. Paul said, which one of you have anything you didn't receive? One of the hardest things I had to do early on as a pastor was to tell one of my family members, you can't sing. They were horrible. But they were already singing before I was, took the pastorship. And I finally just had to sit them down one day and said, you can't sing. You need to do something else. But people, you know, they just think they can do anything. God makes us all individual. We're all made differently. 
Listen, I know some, and this is getting less and less because the attrition rate in ministry is horrendous. <laughs> I tell Don, it's about like the prison. 60% of the people in ministry today, 36 months from now, will be out of it. It just chews them up and spits them out. Some aren't called, and they find that out, right? Some get into stuff they shouldn't get into and whatever. But six, that's a staggering number, isn't it? Six out of ten people who are in the ministry in, in uh, August of 2023 will be out of the ministry in August of 2026. It just has a way of just, just devouring people. And there's a lot of factors that go in that. But that's, that's pretty. But a lot of times people are trying to do things they're not called to do. That's one of the things that I respect Billy Graham for tremendously. He stayed in his calling. You know, he just stayed in his calling. He said, I'm gifted at this. Some of the best youth pastors I know are in their 60s because they know that's what they're called to do and they stay there. You know Billy Graham could have built a church anywhere in this country and filled it up. But he stayed where he was called in evangelism. And that's how God used him. So understanding that and knowing that God, whatever you're gifted at, always give him the glory for it. Always give him the glory for it. And don't envy somebody else. If you spend your time envying somebody else, you're letting stuff go by that God's wanting you to do. There's going to be people in heaven that are going to be more decorated than any preacher or anything else that the, the body of Christ didn't know very much about. But they stayed on their knees in their closet interceding for others and they didn't seek no credit, no glory. That's what they were called to do. And I know a couple of people like that. They'll probably be over top of us in heaven telling us what to do. Because they abide faithful for what God's given them to do. Man, the body of Christ, because we're human, we don't understand the value of those people who go pray that nobody ever knows about. They crawl in their closet. They do it in secret like Jesus talked about. And they're holding people like you and me up. They're praying for us to stay together and to be strong. And I'm thankful. There's a... You'll, you'll find out that you're never going to be happy trying to do something you're not called to do. It may look fun from the outside, but you need to abide where God's put you. And some people really are called to intercede their whole life. But I'd say their rewards are just piling up in heaven. Uh, we didn't learn much about this guy until we t he just briefly gets mentioned there in Acts. Was it Cornelius? He's up, but man, that guy was just behind the scenes doing it, doing it, doing it. <clears throat> and he says, um, the length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width, um, in verse 18, the width of throughout the, the height, five cubits made of woven linen, the sockets of bronze, the utensils, the tabernacle for the service, all its pegs and all its pegs of court shall be of bronze. So that's where the judgment took place, that outer court. You come in there and all that sacrifice and the judgment placed on the animal, ultimately on Christ for us, all that represents where God's going to judge the sin, right? If Christ had not come and died in our place, I, we would have paid the price for our own sin, which means all of us would have been annihilated. None of us would have been able to pay the price for our own sin. 
as I said last night, you and I are never going to outgive God because we're so far in the hole to start with when we show up because he sacrificed his own son. So we're never going to get the scales balanced. You're never going to outgive God with time, money, love, mercy, whatever. If you give other people mercy and you think, man, I'm tired of doing that. They just throw it back in my face. How do you think the Lord feels? You and I are never going to outgive him. He's given us so much mercy. He is. I heard a guy say one time, he's talking to us preachers, he said, give out plenty of mercy because you're going to need it yourself someday. All of us need mercy, and we're never going to catch up the Lord on his mercy. You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And speaking of this lampstand, in the tabernacle of the meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever in their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Put this back up there. Put the chart back up. So this menorah, what we call the menorah or the candlestick here, and we talked about it. Uh, now he's talking about the oil. So this menorah, is seven. We know it's complete. Almanops, which is the first thing to bloom in Israel. It's the bloom, first thing in Israel to bloom. Seven stems, the center stem, and it's got to have this pure olive oil in it, right? Which represents the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is represented here, but inside of Jesus is what? The Holy Spirit, the oil, right? So Jesus gives off the light. Now see, the Holy Spirit wants to remain hidden. He said he don't even want to speak of himself. He wants to speak only of Christ, right? He wants to exalt Christ. That's his role in the world today. So he's hidden in the menorah, but his power, who he is, is represented by the oil. So when I, now if I come back to me, I come in with thanksgiving and praise. I repent, whatever repentance I need to do. I wash myself, sanctify myself with the washing of the water of the word. I speak the word. When I go to pray, I'll give thanks and praise. And sometimes I'll be specific. Yesterday, I thanked God. Yesterday when I went to pray, I thanked God for all the material things he's given me. I don't do that every day. Uh, I may casually do that every day, but I was specific yesterday. I, I gave God thanks for my transportation. I gave him thanks for my housing, that we have a warm house to live in. I gave God thanks for my shoes yesterday. I gave him specific thanks for attire, clothing. I was very specific. I'm like a little kid when I go pray. I don't try to be a Pharisee. I don't try to be all spiritual. I just try to be real with God, right? And so when I get here, if I give repentance and then I wash myself, I'll speak God's word. I, I say to God things like, I thank you that I am the righteousness of Christ. Because my righteousness is horrible, right? It's like filthy rags. So I'll speak those scriptures that talk about being the righteousness of Christ. And I'll wash myself with that. Remind myself, remind my soulish man and speak over my life with the, the things of God. Then I have a cup of coffee with God. This is where I just go... Tell him everything. You might as well tell him everything. He knows it anyway, right? Uh, he reads your mail and my mail before we open it. So you might as well be real with God, right? And so have a cup of coffee with God. Get his perspective. Let him hear you. He's big enough to take your troubles, right? 
by the time we get here, we're, now we're trying to involve the Holy Spirit into our journey. Because when I go to this last piece of furniture before going behind the veil, I want the Holy Spirit involved so that when I, whatever request I make, they're according to the will of God, not according to the flesh of Matthew. Because there's a lot of things I'd like to see God do, right? But I want to be timely, and I want His will to be done. And, I, and this is what keeps coming back to me here in the last few weeks. I need to live my life and pray my prayers for His glory. If you read Philippians, everything in our lives should be built around the gospel. Fellowship, speaking, everything. It should come around, which the gospel is Christ, right? It should be centered around Him. And he talks about how, there in Philippians, about how our lives, and Paul said that, whether I live or die, I want it all to be for the glory of God. I don't care if people ever think I'm spiritual. That's all the Pharisees cared about. They wanted everybody to think they were spiritual. I want to be in the will of God. I want to know Him. I want to be able to be hidden in Christ. And so when I get here, I want to pray prayers that bring glory and honor to Him and that He's going to hear and answer. And not things that I just see and think I'd like to see that happen. So, and it's what you'll find out. This day, he may have you pray about something specific. I, I'm going to give you an example. And I'm going to tell on myself here. <clears throat> There's a family that I love. They don't go to church here. They ain't never went to church here. And, but I know they've walked with God Faithfully at a point in their life. And I'm so frustrated about that. I'm so frustrated that they don't walk with God anymore. And so, sometimes I think, I've just, what is wrong with them? They know better. They know better. They've walked with God. They've seen His glory and they just out on Him. And when I think about them, I get frustrated. I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? Well, yesterday, when I went to pray, the Holy Spirit brought them to me. And he said, let's try a different approach. Let's forget being frustrated and upset with them. He said, why don't you start praying for their eyes to be opened? And the deception that they've fallen underneath would fall away and that they would be renewed to who I am. Whole different perspective, right? But until I went in and prayed yesterday, I was ready to go hog time and drag them to church. Because that's what's best for them. <laughs> right? But when I went to pray... God changed my perspective on that. And he gave me compassion, changed my frustration into compassion. When I look outside and nobody's more frustrated with the world 
uh, because they don't know which bathroom to use than I am. I am frustrated with, over that stuff. That bothers me. But they're blind. You got to remember, and I try to remind myself, they're blind. The God of this world has deceived them and caused them to be blind. Unless whatever we think about the devil, and I got some bad thoughts about him. Um, he's good as his job. Yes, he has. Been doing a long time. And that's what I, uh, I had a person in the church, or, or there was a person in the church years ago that got, was getting close to God, but they started getting a little prideful. You know, thinking they were out-spiritualizing everybody. And they, they said that, uh, well, if the devil comes up to me, I'll just blow him off like a cotton ball. Well, their life was living hell for about six months after that. Even, the de even Michael didn't have an accusation against Satan. He didn't act like he was nothing. Read the book of Jude. The Bible said Michael didn't bring an accusation against Satan. He said he used his authority from God, right? He said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. You and I are no match for Satan on our own. You better not think that. You better stay humble and you better count on God and his power and his authority. <clears throat> and I told you this before, one of my friends who's been in ministry, was on TBN for a lot of years, until the Lord told him to go back to the local church in Texas. But he, uh, he said he was in a town, and he said he was in a hotel, and he said uh, he woke up, and a demon had, had shown up. <clears throat> and he, dealt, he was originally from California. He dealt with a lot of people with witchcraft and stuff in the ministry in California, and witches and all kinds of stuff that he dealt with over the years. And he said he knew it was the devil. He said because of his extensive experience in this realm, he said the first thing I did was hit the bed. He said I knew if my arm went through the bed that I had been allowed to see in the spirit realm. He said but I knew if my arm didn't go through the bed I was laying on. He said I knew that demon had been allowed to manifest himself in my realm. And he said, so I hit the bed and my arm didn't go through it. He said, so I knew that demon had shown. And he said, it was a grotesque figure. And he said, here's what he said to him. <laughs> he said, that demon said to me, he said, he said, you have your little church meetings. You go and you prophesy to one another and do all you want to do. He said, but he threw his old grotesque arm up and pointed me in the face. And he said, but you stay out of my kingdom. In other words, the devil don't care what a good time we have in church as long as we don't take it out there and start messing with his kingdom. If the work's not done in here. The work's done out there. You want to show how spiritual you are? Go out there and start dealing with the kingdom of darkness. That's when we show how spiritual we are. I tell you this, this is a pretty powerful story because we know that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we're going to see more demonic activity because the devil knows he's got a short time. We're going to see more possession and all that. And I've dealt with that some in the ministry, but we're going to see more of that because the devil knows he's running out of time. However, this same fella <coughs> said that he, the Lord was using him and, and the Lord was moving in his services. And he said he got a phone call from a witch. And they had a coven of witches there in California. And he said, 
Uh, of course, you can find anything anywhere anymore. It don't just have to be California. But they started the, started a lot of stuff in California. Uh, but he said, uh, he said, she said, I, we want to know about this power you got because God was using him in a in a mighty way. And he said, he he said I he didn't want to go. He said, so he said he told her he said I will pray about it and call you back. And he said he didn't want to go deal with these witches if it wasn't God's will. You know, he didn't want to get like uh, trapped, right? He didn't want to get set up. But he said he went to pray about it and the Lord told him to go. So he said uh, he went to this particular location where they all met. It was one house. And he said there were like 13 witches, self-proclaimed witches, who believed in witchcraft and and he said, he was there and he said, they said, we want to know how you get this power. And he said, well, I get it through Jesus Christ. He said, I, he brought his Bible and he said, I was telling him, he said, we don't want to hear nothing about Jesus or about religion. He said, we just want this power you got. We want to know how you're getting this power. And so he said, I come back to Jesus Christ. And he said, they, they didn't want to hear about Jesus. He said, at, when he was about getting ready to part ways, he said, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, there's a, there's a young man here in this house. He said, he's got a hole in his thigh that goes all the way to the bone that won't heal. He said, I'm getting ready to heal him and make believers out of these witches. And he said, he said he, so he told them, he said, listen, said the Lord just spoke to me. There's a young man in this house that has a hole in his thigh that goes all the way to his bone. And he said, the Lord said he's getting ready to heal him. Well, the woman who owned the house said, hey, that's my son. But she thought she'd one-upped him. She said, that's my son, but he's gone. I sent him down the street, said he's not here in the house because I didn't want him here when we were doing all this. <clears throat> and as soon as she said that, he stepped out from behind the door. He did not go down the street. So they brought him in and, and Randy prayed over him and Randy told him, said, go get a pair of shorts on. Let's see what the Lord's done. He come back and he had a, a, a hole of pink flesh that had filled that hole up when they'd prayed for him. All those witches burned all their material, gave their lives to Jesus Christ and found the real power. Now that's the real power. No big show about it. He just went over there, took his Bible, waited on God. God showed up, said, I'm going to do this, did it, bam. How it is. We don't have to make a show out of everything. We can just walk with God and let Him show up and do His thing, right? He He and really, when we make too big of a show out of everything, it draws people to us. We want them to be drawn to Him. Because I'm going to die someday. But He'll always be on His throne. Amen. We want people to look to Him. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for your word. Help us to be more like you when we leave here. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins and transgressions. May we always give glory and honor to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I may do next week, if I get all this worked out, I may have you a handout. These priest garments are magnificent, what we can learn from them. So that's what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to try to get some handouts together for you to give you some stuff that you can take and see. Uh, there's a lot of things that these priest garments speak to us about here in Exodus. We'll see you this weekend.